chapter 10 of John's Gospel. And we're looking at the last part of this chapter 10, verses 22 to the end of it, verse 42. We're finding ourselves coming closer to the end of um, this first portion of the book where we see the public ministry of Jesus with all of the signs, the seven signs. Uh, next week we will be looking at the seventh sign uh, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Then um, after that will be uh, the uh, chapter 13 to the end, which is really Jesus' special time with his disciples. And that whole last, pretty much the last week of Jesus' life is spent in those last chapters, even the last hours of his life are spent with the disciples. Um, so we see, hopefully you've been reading, if you've been looking at all at the other Gospels, you see how different John's Gospel is. It's, if you look at, I've got a book called The, uh, the Four Gospels, and the, different, the similarities in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then the similarity where John uh, is uh, the same information is found, and there's pages upon pages of just John alone. It's a very unique gospel. It's a, it's it's uh, it's been we've been told that uh, the reason for it so that we may believe, and and all of these these signs that uh, not just miracles, but they're just signs pointing to who Jesus is, and these discourses and this. Uh, prologue, which is key to understanding the entire book, is key to, to remember to go back and read, which we're going to read again today, because it's very important to see how John laid that out for us and see really that there is only light and there is only darkness. There is no gray. There is no middle ground. As I said last week, there is no fence to sit on. You can't find it in the Bible, and you can't find it in the Gospel of John. There's no place to sit. You're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. Jesus just can't be a nice guy, because if he is just a nice guy, then you don't know who he is, and you're on the wrong side of, of the equation. Verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Really what he's saying there, you're annoying the daylights out of us when you get to the point. He's really just, they're really tired of, being, of Jesus. They're very annoyed at Jesus because they really are looking to Jesus to, to frame him. They're looking for him to say something so they can really nail him. Um, even though he's given them lots and given us lots of pointers, uh, in who he is and what he has done, he hasn't said exactly what they wanted to hear him, them to, him to say to them. So they said to him, how long are you going to keep on annoying us? If you're the Christ, just simply tell us. And that would be saying that I'm the Messiah. That's what he would say. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life 
and they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones and again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods, small g. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said that I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across, again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who brings belief. You are the one that causes the will to desire you. You are the one who brings new life. We are also thankful, Father, that you allow us to participate in that process, that it is our will that you change, and we have this great privilege of saying, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us that privilege because we are culpable for our decisions. We are to blame and accountable. As Jesus points out to us here, Lord, you, as you do to us on several occasions and has been throughout this entire book, that you are the one who calls people to yourself. You are the one that calls people out of death into life. And yet, Lord, you are the one who holds us all responsible for our decisions of not deciding to follow you. Lord, we are thankful that we have this place to come and to find out the truth. As we come here to find out again who you are and again be encouraged and to be strengthened in our faith as we read these words about Jesus. We pray that again he is the one that we have believed in. And if Lord, if there is some error in our thoughts, in our doctrine, in our what we thought is truth is not, then Father, I pray that you do a work mightily in us these moments. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. John has brought us into this chapter 10 which we have seen this endearing picture of the shepherd and as we find out in, throughout this book, and we find out in John's Gospel, and we find out in chapter 10, that not everybody is a sheep. Even though everybody looks at the picture of Jesus, 
and loves to be on the shoulders of that shepherd walking. Jesus says, not every one of you is one of my sheep. Um, and again, we can't help but go back to the prologue. The very beginning of this, and he says, John tells us this. He says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God or to become sheep. Now, they aren't goats and then become sheep. They've always been sheep. Then they recognize that they are sheep because they didn't know they, they were. And some people who thought that they were sheep, Jesus is doing a very outstanding job of making know, note to them that they're goats and they're not sheep. And as he says here, who, uh, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're seeing here Jesus again making a decision and making a decisive comment that separating those people who are really followers of God because of who Jesus is, and Jesus keeps on talking as we saw last week about being the one who was sent, and we're going to see again this week, he talks about the one who has been sent, and he also uses times and dates on a calendar and of the rituals and of the festivals, and he's no different here. Notice in chapter, in verse 22, he says, this is the feast of dedication that took place in the wintertime in Jerusalem. Now, what Jewish holiday takes place in December? Hanukkah. And so what is he talking about here? He's talking about Hanukkah. This is what the feast of dedication was all about. Now, it's not a biblical, it's been not mandated by God. But as you know, what the feast of dedication, or they call it a feast of lights, uh, that's why they light the menorah. And it goes all the way back to uh, the, uh, the 169 B.C. when, the, Assyri when the, uh, the nation of Syria had, or they call it the Seleucid dynasty, came in and started taking over Jerusalem and started overtaking uh, the people. Uh, if you read... Uh, First, you know, it's not canonical, it's not biblical, but if you can read uh, the Apocrypha, the book of First and Second Maccabees, you'll read the history there, or if you can get your hands on the work of Josephus, who was the first century um, Jewish historian, talks about what took place at this time. And why they have Hanukkah is that during this time of 169 B.C., this despot ruler who came in, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, came in and sounded like a good guy, but really was ruthless. Uh, the Jews saw that they were in battle, and they saw that they were going to be in conflict. They saw that they were in a powerful fight, and some of them made alliances with them and sounded like this was going to be a good deal, and it turned out to be a disastrous deal. And uh, Antiochus Epiphanes came in and... Uh, really uh, violated the temple, came in and sacrificed uh, pagan worship upon the altar, sacrificed a pig, shoved pork down the throats of the priests, 
just, and if you go back and read it, it's, it's, it's just a desecration going on of the holy site. Just was, just, uh, they call it the, uh, uh, the, the place of desolation. And uh, the writer of First Maccabees in chapter 4, if you read that, you see how all the things that uh, Antiochus could do to, to just desecrate who God is, he did. And during that time, there was a man named Mattathias, who was a priest, and had some sons. And the one son was named Judas Maccabeus, or called Judas the Hammer. That's his last name, is the Hammer. And the word Maccabee means hammer. And so Judas Maccabee, or the Hammer, spurred on by his father, who stood up and would, would defy, was defying all the authorities, and wanted nothing to do with this because other people were in other places and other leaders were capitulating to this and sacrificing to other gods and giving in and letting them do what they wanted to do. Mattathias stood up and says, no way, Jose, this is not going to happen. This is not going to take place. This is, you know, this is our law. This is our covenant. This is our God. This is the site that God has given us. This is the temple that the Lord has given us. We're not going to do this and, and just incited these people to rise up, not only religiously, but nationally as well, in a nationalistic way and a fervor. And so his son fought and in 164 B.C. beat them and actually kind of reclaimed the, the temple site and actually after um, many years fought them and won their independence and that's where we find, if you go back and Google, the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmonean dynasty were then now the kings of uh, Mattathias' relatives were now the kings until Herod the Great comes in and wipes it all out again in the 30s. Uh, and Herod comes in and we see this, you know, Herod does his doing and becomes, uh, you know, uh, a despot himself. So for this feast, and you read, you read in, in 1 Maccabees, and it's again repeated in 2 Maccabees, if you look at this, and, and in Josephus' Antiquities, his book, you read this, and it says, now we should just dedicate and rededicate the temple site, and by putting lights and having eight days of festivals to commemorate this day of rededicating the temple. That's why they call it the Feast of Dedication. Now, this is the time frame of when this took place. This is two months after the Feast of Booths. So we looked at, we found out that the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths took place in October. We are now looking at two months after this time, and it says it's winter. It was fall, now it's winter. In December, and when did, they when did this take place? When did Hanukkah take place? Well, according to... The historians and Maccabees, it says it was taking place on the month of Kislev, which is December, on the 25th of December. This is when they dedicate the temple, and they have this festive day of lights. And so it was a happy time. Not a, not a time commanded by God, commanded by God to do this, but it was religious, but it was highly nationalistic as well. It was It was political to remind people of who they were for a little while. 
And but now they go on and they remember it today. And they have you know, you see at Hanukkah there's menorahs lit, lit uh, lighted, excuse me, because they want to commemorate this day of dedication. So we have to remember that this is the feast of of, of dedication. And again, Jesus uses this occasion to tell people who he is. So if you didn't look up the Feast of Dedication, you'd miss <laughs> all of that history. You'd miss everything that was going, taking place to go around what Hanukkah is, but what, why this was an important time for the people. And, and they didn't have the pilgrimage there. They could do it in their homes, but some people went to Jerusalem for this. And so Jesus, it's wintertime, it's cold, and Jesus is not standing out in the open, but walking in the temple in the colonnade to get away from the wind and to get away from things because it's wintertime. So he finds himself walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon, even though there was a new temple, the, the, the second temple came uh, that Herod, Herod uh, built, they still kept this, uh, this, this uh, colonnade of Solomon, his name there. So the Jews gathered around him, and kind of, really, the word here is they closed in around him. It, it seems a little bit more ominous when they said they hear that they, they gathered around him, but it, the word is really closed in around him and said to him, like I said, how long? How long are you going to just keep on annoying us? You're a pain in my neck, Jesus. We want you to say that you're the Messiah. Now, we've seen how many times Jesus saying of his deity, him being the son, him being equal to God, him being the see the work of the Father, you see, you see me, you see my works back and forth. Jesus didn't say, he's never really said that he is the Christ or the Messiah. He says everything about it, and they're just looking for something to nail him with. And Jesus says, I, I tell you, but you don't believe. He says, the works that I do are my, in my Father's name, that, that's who they are. But you notice, they do not care about the works. They're not after him about the works. They just say, we're not after you about what you're doing. We're after you about what you're saying. And, they, and he again uses the opportunity, says that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. We talked about that last week, about this intimate relationship that Jesus has with us. He calls us by name, and when he calls us, we know it's him talking to us. He says, and they follow me. Again, Jesus is not a shepherd who stands back and watches the sheep go away or go forward and move. He doesn't follow the sheep. The sheep are following him. It's a very different mode of shepherding. Jesus is the leader. He is the one, as we looked at last week, the shepherd work was to lead the sheep and they were gladly to follow him because they felt safe and we're seeing i hope you see that that the safety in the words and the imagery of jesus being the shepherd notice last week he's the gatekeeper he's the door he's the good shepherd he's not the murderer he's not the robber he, he's the only one that will let the good sheep the, the sheep who are his real sheep into the pen he's the only one that will let other shepherds in he's the he's the one who is in control of everything here. And he's the one who has called us to be his sheep, and we hear his voice. There's this great imagery. He says, and notice the gifts that he gives to them, which now is repeating some of the stuff that we learned at last week in chapter 10, in verses 1 through 20, when he says, I give them eternal life, which is the abundant life. Now, we're looking at for other things, but the abundant life, yeah, is having Jesus now, 
having prayer life, having a sanctuary to go to where God's word, having, as, as a Reformed tradition would say, that we have the preaching of the God's word, we have the sacraments, we have all these things in place that give us all the indicators and the gospel and symbols. I mean, that's a part of our abundant life, but really the life that we have that is abundant is not just life, it is eternal life. That's abundant. Because if you just have... If you don't have Jesus when you die, you're dead your whole life, and you remain dead, meaning in a spiritual death. So you don't have eternal life. You continue in eternal death, and only people who have eternal life go to heaven and be with the Lord forever, and only one who die, die, and have eternal death and go to hell forever. So you see that you continue in the state that you're in, in this life, except one passes to a much greater life and he says i give them eternal life notice none of them will perish jesus believes in eternal security like reformers do and calvinists do jesus says that you'll never ever lose your salvation now if your salvation is based upon you and me it's very easy to lose it but if we base our salvation on the work of christ which we see through his words and through the entire Bible, is a work that has been finished and complete and has been satisfying the Lord himself, the Father himself. You can't lose your salvation. You just cannot lose it. You can't have it and then lose it. It would be not a, it would, what security would it be? He says, they'll never perish, nor will anyone come in the sheepfold and snatch them away and rob them. Remember that scenario, that, that picture of somebody coming in and murdering you? We have other shepherds that come in and we have, and his accusation was really an indictment against the leadership of Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests who should have been the shepherds of people's flock. What are they doing? They're killing them. They're murdering them. They're using them for their own good and for their own uh, prophet we saw it in ezekiel we saw it in isaiah we i mentioned in chapter 31 of the book of jeremiah talking about the shepherd's role and god being the shepherd and jesus is pointing to himself as being the shepherd which points to himself as being equal with god and and, and being taking on that role of who god is in, in in the life of the people he says here that that no one can snatch him out of their hand. Nobody. If we're held in the palm of God's hand, we have to realize that no one and nothing in our lives, as we've read in the book of Romans, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can anything? And the answer is no, nothing can. We are secure. It's eternal security, which is a wonderful thing. Because if we wake up and think that we can lose our salvation, you think we would have, you know, I mean, there's anxiety plus. If we've got to earn God enough, if we've got to do enough, if we've, we've got to get, you know, merit, we, we, where do we, whose scale do we use? How do we know we've done enough? How do we don't know we've done enough that we've got enough points on our card to make sure that we have a lower level of security? And if we do enough, we do enough for the Lord, oh, we may have a second or third level of security. How stupid is that? But that's the game that we have played in our lives. We think about that, and other people do too, thinking, oh, you're a good person, Jim. You do a lot for the church. Certainly, there's going to be blessings for you. There's no guarantee. 
You can do all this work. It, that doesn't, there's no merit with God. There's only, we're working against God all the time, the Bible tells us. So we don't have to worry about this. We can never be snatched out of the hand of God. Notice, he says, my, uh, he goes, my father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Now notice the interchange here. In verse 28, he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And in verse 29, he says, no one can snatch them out of my father's hand. So we see two hands here, don't we? Or do we see that we have the hand of God supported by the Son, and we see the Father supporting the Son holding on to the sheep as well? We see this oneness of the Father and the Son in will and task, not, not in, in their roles. That's the thing about the Trinity is that it's very different is that we have three persons of the Trinity, which can be mind-boggling, I understand this, but we see that there is a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we see that Jesus is God, we see that the Father is God, and we see that the Holy Spirit is God. But we also see that the Father is not Jesus, and Jesus is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. There's three distinct personalities in the Godhead, but they're all the same essence, the same stuff. They had the same will, they had the same passions, they had the same desires. And that's what he's talking about here as he says, I and the Father are one. Now how can it be that Jesus is the, is the Father and makes sense of all the different roles? I only listen to my Father. Is Jesus schizophrenic here? Is Jesus talking to himself? Is Jesus having a conversation with himself and one role he's the father and he looks in the mist mirror and he goes, he's the son? You see, you see that can't be. Nor can it be, as the prologue says to us, the, the word was with God and the word is God. How can the word be with God and be God? I mean, it's like, how can he be the father and the son at the same time? Because he's not. There are two distinct or three distinct personalities who have different roles in the Godhead but are very different. And this is what, it's hard to conceive this, I understand this, but we have to look at the scriptures and the scriptures are taking and talking about three distinct roles and personalities but all doing the same because they're the same stuff, the same essence. And that's when we read the Apostles' Creed, and when we read the Nicene Creed, and we see the, the controversies that come out, it, it, we, we read that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. One essence, one being. One being with the Father. And because Jesus is the hand of a shepherd. The Father has a hand of the shepherd, and Jesus is the hand of a shepherd. So Jesus is that good shepherd. And again, the word good does not necessarily mean quality. It means uniqueness. We've had many shepherds come, but this guy's the real deal. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's unique. He is authentically the shepherd. He is the real shepherd. Everybody else has come, not to say that there are people that have been terrible shepherds, but there have been terrible shepherds, as there have been terrible kings in Israel. There were some good, good uh, kings and there were some terrible kings. Jesus says, there's been lots of, there's been lots of shepherds, but I'm, the, I'm it. There's no other shepherd to come. I'm him. And then he says, this, for this understanding, we see 
Now the Jews are going to pick the stones up again because, you know what? They don't get a lot, but they're getting it right. What they're getting is really what Jesus is trying to get them to get. They're getting it that Jesus is talking about of his relationship with the Father and his deity and his divine nature and human nature. And even though he hasn't said that he's the Messiah, they're ready to kill him because they're getting it right. Now, they're not getting the gospel right, but they're getting what Jesus is saying right. And if they're getting it, they don't like what they're hearing. And again, this is the response that you and I are going to receive by proclaiming the gospel to people. It's the gospel, not you and me, the gospel that we want to offend people or bring people to himself. Because those light is going to shine, and as we see here, the opposition is great, and it can be amongst any kind of people. And Jesus said to them, he goes, now wait a minute, he goes, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? You guys are ready to kill me. For what, what is it? Why are you going to kill me? And they said, we don't care. It's not about good work. We don't care what the works you're doing. But Jesus is saying, if you saw the works that I was doing and you saw that this is the work of the Father, as the scriptures would teach. Remember John the Baptist in prison? Is this the real deal? Is Jesus the real deal? And what does Jesus say? John, the deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing, the cripple are walking. That's the sign of the work of the Messiah. And that's the pointers that, that Jesus is telling them. This is what you guys should be able to see. But they're not looking at his works. All they're looking for is to kill him because of what he's saying. He said, it's not for good work, verse 33, that you're going to, we're going to stone you. It's because of blasphemy, because you, being a man, are making yourself God. And Jesus says, now wait a minute. Jesus has a, a diversion or a tactic here to cause them to pause from their insanity. And he causes them to think about what they're saying, which is a good tactic to use for us, not to escape like Jesus did. I don't know. I don't have to escape from my life in America yet for presenting the gospel. Maybe some people do in some other cultures have to escape because of their talking about who Jesus is. But what Jesus does is what we should do is cause people to think about why they're angry at you. Why are you angry with me? What I just said to you about Jesus, if you get in a great conversation about Jesus, what is it that is ticking you off? Or what is it that you don't agree with me about? Because Jesus brings them back to the Bible and he says this. He goes back to Psalm 82. Let's turn to Psalm 82 to get the context of what he's saying. Psalm 82, he says this, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So now he's talking about judges, and he uses the small God in this. How long will you judge, he says, give justice to the weak and fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, what does Jesus say in here? He says, if I, in verse 35, if he called them gods, 
I'm sorry, verse 34. Jesus answered, is it not written in your law? Notice now he's not just talking about the first five books of the Bible because he's quoting the, old, he's quoting the Psalms here. So Jesus is collectively looking at the whole, the whole Old Testament together. And he says, is it not written in your law? I said, as we just read, you are God's. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, meaning that he's talking to not only the judges in a small g, but he also uses small g to talk about the people who hear the word of God. All of Israel who hears God's word are gods, he says. Or as we've learned in Exodus, that Israel is considered the son of God. The nation of Israel is the son of God. Ultimately, as we see when Jesus is... is um, um, when he is born, and we see that it says, my son has come out of Egypt, he is not just talking about uh, Jesus there, he's also talking about the embodiment of the nation of Israel, who Jesus is now. Jesus is, embodies the new Israel. It is no longer just Jews, it is Jews and Gentiles who come to know who Jesus is. So now he is talking about, he's saying here that everybody who hears this word, and who is part of who hears this word from, from God in the Old Testament, he calls them, as he says here, everybody who hears the word of God, to who the word of God came, he says, are called gods. God called people gods. He says, so why are you coming after me because I called myself a son of God? So are you the son of God, he says. So is Israel the son of God. Why are you coming after me? So Jesus is turning the word on around him again just to cause him to think. He says, but he says, but it's not about what I'm saying that you're after. You've got to look at who I am because of who I am and what I do go hand in hand. It's a coin. It's got two sides to it. You've got to look at one side and the other side. You just are focusing on what I'm saying. And because remember we saw in chapter 5, he goes, if you see my works, you'll see the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, but if I do them in verse 38, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand. Now, this isn't just knowing, but this is an understanding that's a continuing action here. Not only just knowing once, but proceeding to and in the process of continually understanding is what you and I are in, right? I mean, we're knowing who Jesus is, and we're, I want to know Christ more, Paul writes. I want to know Christ more and the power of his resurrection. He says, but if I do them, even though you don't believe me, he says, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. They've had enough. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, why did Jesus escape from their hands? Because it wasn't the Passover, right? Jesus is not going to die on Hanukkah. He's going to die during the Passover, because God is sovereign, God is time frame, as we've, as, uh, we've heard today, that it is in God's timing, as Thompson said in his prayer, that God's timing is wonderful. Now, you know how big of a theological statement that is, that God's timing is wonderful? Because lots of things happen in your life and my life that don't seem wonderful. But... If God is in control of everything, even of his dying, then we see that God is in control of everything. This wasn't a good event. It was a terrible event. It was the, 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 the murdering and the killing of his son. But in the ultimate end, 
It was for our own redemption. It was for a greater cause. It was for a good that God had totally decreed from the very beginning. And he knows every hair upon our head. And he knows everything about us. And he promises never to lose any one of us and that no one can snatch us out of his hand. That doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer. That doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. That doesn't mean anything we want it to mean other than the fact that God has given us eternal life and we are eternally secure in his hands. That's how big that statement is. Now notice Jesus, and we've talked about this before. Remember it said Jesus turned away from them? And what did I talk about? I mentioned the fact that that is many times in the Gospels that we see God saying this. Remember in Ezekiel when the Spirit of God left the temple? We see God turning his back on the people. We now see this as a, a, a functional judgment. The functional judgment of God, of Jesus here, actually doing an already but the not all yet kind of judgment that's coming. But Jesus is turning away. He went away from where? He went away from them. Because this is really now bringing a close to Jesus' public ministry. He's been patient with them. He has come to his own, and his own decided not to follow him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have had to love to have you just come under like, like a... A hen calls out for the chicks, coming under her wings. I would have loved to have had you do that, but what does he say? But you would not have it. So he went away across to the Jordan, which is now leaving Jewish territory and going into Gentile territory, was where John the Baptist was. Going back to the beginning, we see in the beginning John the Baptist, who was the witness, the very beginning of the witness. We see now this inclusio. Remember I used the word inclusio? We see a bookend starting with one thing and ending with one thing, and we see this massive sandwich in between or all these books in between. It's like two slices of bread or two bookends. We see the, the ministry of Jesus, what? Beginning with John the Baptist, as we go to, turn with me to the beginning of the Gospel of John. And we see this in verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, of God, John uh, chapter 1. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who you are, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed that I am not the Christ. See, they're looking for the Christ, and they weren't looking for God, they were looking for the Messiah. And remember now, at this whole time of nationalistic fervor, they'd be looking for a new, another Judas Maccabeus, wouldn't they? They were already saying for Jesus, we're looking for a king. We want a king. We want somebody who's going to be like Judas Maccabeus. And Jesus says, I don't want to be your king. So we see this Jesus again turning the tables and realizing that you don't need that kind of king again. Because look at the situation that you're in. So he goes on in verse 22 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of John, and they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And who do you say this about yourself? He goes, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And notice verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan. We see this bookend. We see Jesus beginning with John's testimony. And John being dead now for a long period of time still is crying out in the wilderness, is he not? He's still a testimony to the nation of Israel. 
He's still a testimony to them because he says here, Jesus went away. Now this is an indictment against the Jews because now he's going back to the Gentiles. And how do the Gentiles receive him? You could go over this and read this and go, wow, but this is important. We see God's functional judgment turning his back on Jerusalem because when he rides into Jerusalem on the Passover and he weeps over them, he knows what's coming. He knows the destruction of Israel is coming. He knows the destruction of this temple is coming. He knows that these people are going to be massacred, not only physically, but he knows that God's judgment is coming upon them. He rides into the city of David, which is really not the city of David, because Luke tells us that this is the hour that darkness reigns, and all of Israel is in the hands of Satan. And that's why God, Jesus, turns his back upon them. Because they are not his sheep, he just told them. He is, they are not in his hands. They are being snatched out. They can't be snatched out because they never were in his hands to begin with. So no wonder they want to kill him. So he went away across the Jordan to the place where John has been baptizing at first. And there, wow, he remained. He remains until we see this Passover coming. Now he, we're going to see next week when he... Lazarus comes, he comes by the appeal of the sisters because Lazarus is dead. But notice the response. Notice the response. Jesus is no longer around these people. He is now in a desert and people are coming to Jesus. He is not going to them. They are coming to him. And he says, they said, many came to him and they said, listen, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. You see the testimony and what we read today in 1 Peter, I mean 2 Peter. Go back to 2 Peter. And what our reading was today, a call to worship, was this. 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice he says, for when he received honor, verse 17, or verse 16, we can read the passage again, it's God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I'm not pleased with you, but I'm pleased with him. There's no way on earth that you're going to please me. He's the only one that pleases me, so he's the good shepherd. You better follow him. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. And we have something, now notice this is important. We have something more sure. More sure than the Mount of Transfiguration. More sure than all the miracles that Peter has done. As we've seen the signs and the wonders that we see. That people who look at those kinds of things and need those kinds of signs to testify to them being vibrant churches or those places that need to hear those things and to see those things week in and week out because they don't feel like they're full of the Holy Spirit enough. And Peter, who was a part of the whole thing, from the holy mountain of transfiguration to all the signs and the wonders and the people being blind and, and being able to see and the cripple being healed and tongues and prophecies, all this stuff, what does he say? He goes, but we have something much more sure than all that stuff. 
He says, we have God's word to which you do well to pay attention to. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what John is ending up with here. John is saying, I've given you all the evidence, all the evidence that you're going to need to want to believe in me now. Now, granted, we still see the crucifixion because John's testimony about Jesus still hasn't come through yet, right? The Lamb of God has not been sacrificed. His blood has not cleansed the, the, the people of Israel or Israel, both Jews and Gentiles. His blood has not been shed. He has not been raised from the dead. He has not ascended. So all those things haven't taken place yet. But he's secure, is he not? Now, just think about this. He's talking about our security here because we believe, based upon the word of God, who Jesus is. Now, the people who have died before us, two weeks ago, Marianne dies. In her funeral, I talked about God had prepared a place for her. Now, because Marianne or anyone who you know is a genuine believer in the Lord, Anyone you know that is a genuine believer in the Lord died. Do you think their salvation now because they're dying with the Lord is any greater than your living on earth and your security in your salvation? Do you think that they're more saved than you are while you're living on earth now and they're in heaven? Do you think they are more saved than you and they're more secure in their salvation than you? And the answer has to be eh, wrong answer. Because if no one can snatch him out of God's hand, then how secure are you? Eternally secure. So they're not better off than we are. They're just getting a taste of what we're hoping to get. But our salvation is no more secure or no less secure than theirs, which should be a tremendous blessing to you and me to realize that the security that they had in who Jesus was when he they were living on earth is the same security that we have while we're waiting for the Lord to either come or to take us. And that's why he says many believed in him there. Because they believed in the testimony. Now, folks, you and I don't need to have signs and wonders in our life to have people come to testify who Jesus is. Now, do we put God in a box? No. Does God, we tie God's hands? No. God is able and he has all the authority to show anything he wants he can bring all the prophecies he can bring all the tongues he can bring all the miracles he can bring every sign that he wants to use but the bible tells us it isn't about the signs it's about what jesus said about himself it's about what this book has said about jesus if you base that then you have eternal security. You will follow, as 1 John says. If you believe in who Jesus is and you follow his commandments, there can't be any dispute that you've been born of God. Now, is that your security? Is that what drives you? Is that what brings you peace today? Knowing that you're a sinner just like the, all of us are and that we can't do anything to please God? Other to believe in the one that God has sent who is he is immensely and eternally and totally pleased with? And that our salvation is completely secured in him? You're not going to be told that anywhere else but here. And you're not going to be shown anywhere else that but here. That's why it's so important, people, to be around God's people and to be around the preaching of God's word from a biblical, theological, exegetical perspective to get the whole picture from beginning to end because you and I know that we can have 
a truncated view of who God is, and we fill in the blanks, hoping that someday we'll get it. And you know what we fill that up with? Junk. That's why we get together. That's why the Reformed tradition, I believe, is best because it ties the dots together. Do we know everything? No. But boy, what the Bible teaches, it tells us from Genesis to Revelation, we see the creation, the fall, the redemption, the consummation. The whole story of who Jesus is. And that's why it's so important. It's so important to pick the right place that teaches the proper and the true word of God. Not just for the experience. Because the experience has nothing to do with the truth. So I find a whole lot of encouragement in this, these verses. About my salvation about my ability to change anybody's life, about me losing my salvation, and about having God give me anything else other than just keep on telling people who about Jesus is. Because that's how people come to know who he is. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to, again as always, use your words, not your servant's words, but your words, to bring encouragement, to bring healing, to bring strength, to bring courage, to bring endurance to the lives of the saints that you have gathered here today. And Father, we know that there are things that we don't understand about who you are. And we know that there are, understand, we don't, there are things that we just don't get sometimes about how we see life unfolding before us. But it's not about how we think life should fold up, up in front of us. It is what you have told us about life itself. And so, Lord, we confess and I confess that we all have sinned against you this week. And we deserve your wrath, and yet we don't get it. And we will never get it because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are a part of that sheepfold that the gatekeeper is keeping us safe. That we do not have to worry about someone coming in and snatching away our faith or our life. May take us physically, but can never take us spiritually. Our souls are protected by the soul keeper. And we thank you for that, Lord. I pray that as we think about evangelism this week, as we think about discipleship this week, I pray, Father, that you, you help us to focus on these essentials of our life. These essentials of our faith as we try to figure out the other parts of life as they unfold to us, let us remind, be reminded of the one who holds the future as the past. Oh God, our help from ages past, our help for years to come. We thank you, Lord, for this gospel. and We pray for you to change lives because of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.